Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 24, Genesis chapter 25. This week, we're going to continue our study on Genesis 25. And we got through about the first 11 verses last week. This week, let's start reading at uh, Genesis 25, chapter 12. Uh, chapter 12, verse 12. Genesis 25, uh, verse 12. And I'm going to read through 18. Genesis 25, verse 12. Here is the genealogy of Ishmael. Avraham's son, who Hagar the Egyptian woman bore to Avraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, listed in the order of their birth. The firstborn of Ishmael was Naviot, followed by Kedar, Adbiel, Mivsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Yatur, Yafish, and Kedma. These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names according to their settlements and camps, 12 tribal rulers. Now, this is how long Ishmael lived, 137 years. Then he breathed his last, he died, and he was gathered to his people. Ishmael's sons lived between Havilah and Shur, near Egypt, as you go towards Asher. He settled near all his kinsmen. You know, it sounds like a lot, but there's a lot of information packed in there. Now, we ended last week taking a brief look at the descendants of Keturah, one of Abraham's concubines. Now, just how many concubines Abraham had beyond Hagar and Keturah, we don't know. Likely, there were others with only these two playing any biblical role, yet that's not at all something we can be sure of. Speculation. Now, generally speaking, the sons of Keturah formed tribal federations and, and along with Ishmael make up the various Arab peoples that we see and know of today. Okay? Now, I say tribal confederations because, you know, unlike the Israelites, who very much tended to stay very closely identified with their individual tribes, you know, Reuben, Simeon, Ephraim, Judah, Benjamin, so on. Okay, the sons of Keturah quickly became less identified with their own individual tribes, and they kind of banded together, all right, um, multiple tribes, in order to have any staying power or influence. In fact, most of the names of the sons of Keturah have been lost to history, all right, and we really can't follow their progress at all. Now, the one that does have a biblical impact is the tribe of Midian, who lived on the western end of the Arabian Peninsula with the Gulf of Aqaba as one of their boundary lines. This is the same Midian that Moses fled to from Egypt after he killed that guard. All right? That same Midian where he found a wife and he lived there for 40 years as a shepherd. You know, in verses 
um, 12 through 18, we get a report on the line of Ishmael. Now, Ishmael, if you'll recall, was the dispossessed firstborn of Abraham and that Egyptian handmaiden of Sarah's, Hagar. Okay. Recall that Ishmael was a teenager by the time Isaac, Yitzhak, was born. Okay. Also recall that until... Um, well, let uh, me back up. Recall that Abraham's only legal wife was Sarah. Okay? And she bore him Isaac. But Abraham had already declared Ishmael to be his firstborn son. Ishmael, as far as Abraham was concerned, was the son of promise, as far as he knew. The son of his who was going to carry on that covenant uh, that God had made with Abraham. I mean, it's no coincidence that the verse just be, just previous to this section on the genealogy of Ishmael that we're reading says this. Okay, after the death of Abraham, God blessed his son Isaac. This was a reminder that God had rejected Ishmael as the son of promise. The son of promise was the one that God himself caused to be born in a miraculous way. Okay? By means of the dead womb of Sarah and the dead seed of Abraham. Okay? The son of promise was Isaac. Now let's review a little bit about Ishmael and gain some context because we're also going to talk about Islam a little just briefly in this lesson. Now before we look at these sons of Ishmael who form the core of the modern Arab peoples, let me point out that Ishmael is a Semite just as Isaac was and of course as Abraham was. What's a Semite? a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. Okay. Actually, the word Semite itself is kind of an error. Okay. At least in the sense of how it's pronounced and spelled. The word should be Shemite, okay. not Semite. All right. And the error is a typical Gentile Christian one because the Hebrew alphabet character that we transliterate as an S can be used in one of two ways, as a sheen or as a scene. Okay. Moving this little dot from one side to the other changes it. It's identical character. Move the dot to one side, it's a scene. To the other side, it's a sheen. Right. The sheen gives us the sh sound. Sh. Mm -hmm. uh, she, shoot, Sharon. Moving the little dot over to the left side gives us the scene, giving us the s sound, like Sam or Seattle or Seaside. The word shim is spelled with a sheen, not a scene. Okay, so it ought to be Shemite. 
In any case, both Isaac and Ishmael had the same father, Abraham. And Ishmael was a descendant of Shem, as was Isaac, as was Abraham. So then they were all Semites. In fact, all the children Abraham sired were Semites. Okay? So the Arabs and the Jewish people are very much related. Okay? They're all Semites. That's what makes the term we hear so much today, anti-Semitic, such an oxymoron. I mean, anti-Semitic is technically a term which means against Semites, against the descendants of Shem. Yet the way that term has always been used is to declare a bigotry against the Jewish people. And interestingly, it's the Arab peoples who are usually those most accused of being anti-Semites. So we have the Arab Semites being called anti-Semitic. Right? Just another one of those mindless phrases and terms that are regularly used in which no one seems to have any idea what they're actually saying. Okay. Now let me also express that just because Ishmael was rejected by God as the son of promise, that does not mean that Ishmael was in some way cursed by God. Ishmael was not punished or judged. He simply could not have been the son of promise because God had determined that another, Isaac, was to be that son. In fact, to sort of make up for Ishmael being dispossessed of the firstborn status that he had held until Isaac was born, Ishmael was given an almost equal physical inheritance as Isaac. It's just that while Abraham would provide Isaac's wealth and prosperity, God would provide for Ishmael's. Okay? So in our age, while the Arab peoples are generally Israel's enemy, they are in no way an accursed people any more than we in this room are accursed because the leaders of our nation have recently come against Israel by forcing them to divide their land. Okay. All the Arabs have been and will continue to be severely disciplined by Yahweh for coming against his set-apart people, just as we Americans as a nation have been recently and will continue to be severely punished by God for forcing Israel to turn over some of their land to their enemies. But whereas the descendants of Noah's son Ham generally are a line of people who are in a bind. Okay, in that they indeed did have a curse put on them. That's not the case with the descendants of Shem, Arabs as well as Hebrews, or frankly Japheth for, for that matter, the third son of Noah. Okay, I mentioned that for all practical purposes, we can say that the descendants of Ishmael, together with the descendants of Keturah, okay, form the modern-day Arab peoples. Okay? And just like we in this room are certainly not purebreds, all right? that is, we all have some mixture of European or Asian or some other stock in us, okay? so it is with the Arab peoples. 
Okay. These descendants of Ishmael and Keturah began commingling among themselves very early on. Therefore, we find mention in Isaiah chapter 60 of Midian, Ephah, Sheba, who are descendants from Keturah, right? side by side with Kedar and uh, Nebaioth, right? who are sons of Ishmael. Now, just for the sake of good context, which is everything in the Bible, let's all read Isaiah 61 through 7 together. That's a great set of verses anyway. Isaiah 60. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 531. Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60. I love the way this begins. Arise, shine, Yerushalayim, for your light has come. The glory of Adonai has risen over you. For although darkness covers the earth and thick darkness the peoples, on you Adonai will rise. Over you will be seen his glory. Nations will go towards your light, kings towards your shining splendor. Raise your eyes and look around. They are all assembling and coming to you. Your sons are coming from afar off. Your daughters being carried on their nurses' hips. Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with delight, for the riches of the seas will be brought to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels from Midian and Ephah, all of them coming from Sheba, bringing gold and frankincense and proclaiming the praises of Adonai. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered for you. The rams of Navyot will be at your service. They will come up and be received on my altar as I glorify my glorious house. Okay. This, of course, is an end times prophecy about what has been happening and is continuing to happen with Israel, mostly right before our eyes. Okay. It's about the return of the Jews to their homeland. Okay. And of course, that return of the Israelites to their God-given land is an ongoing process right, that's been occurring over the last several decades. And in the last few verses of what I just read to you, okay, we see the names of those five tribes, Arab tribes we would call them today, of Midian, Ephah, Sheba, Kedar, and Nabiot. Okay, names we just finished reading in Genesis. Okay, now for the sake of simplicity, okay, what's being said here is that Arab peoples will eventually become friends and servants of Israel and bring wealth and prosperity to them. More pointedly, this is about the Arab peoples coming to worship the Jewish Messiah in Israel. Okay. So this is not for today, but for some time in the very near future. Okay. And the idea is that hordes 
of Arabs will bow down to the Hebrew Messiah. So we must be very careful how we look at the Arab peoples today. Yes, today most Arabs are on the wrong side of the issue, unfortunately, All right, as concerns Israel. They have even chosen to abandon the God of their forefather, Abraham, to take on a false God, a non-God called Allah. They have chosen to be outright enemies of Christians and Jews because of this fact that is so falsely reported in today's news media and in today's tolerance-seeking churches and synagogues. Okay. But as any of us who have heard my dear friend Tass speak knows, there are many Arab believers in Messiah and friends of Israel, so-called Christian Arabs. Okay. The Arab Muslims who believe in Allah are really no more deceived than our family, friends, and neighbors who believe in no God at all. Not, not a whit of difference. Okay. So while we must stand beside Israel knowing that will put us against most of the world, that's our duty and call before God. Okay. This doesn't mean we have to hate the Arabs or the Muslims. We can hate what they believe. We can hate what they do. And quite frankly, we're no more wrong to destroy those who try to destroy us or Israel than we were to fight Hitler's armies in World War II. Okay? But we sure don't have to revel in it, and we don't have to find joy in it. Now is also probably a good time for me to mention a couple of things about Islam. That's because Islam says that Ishmael is the father of Islam. Now, I'm going to spend some time with this because of the terrible ignorance and outright agenda-driven lies about the simple history of the matter of Islam and Ishmael. Now, let me say right up front that Ishmael is not the father of Islam. He's not even the father of all the Arab peoples, just some of them. You see, Isaac and Ishmael represent the crux of the matter okay, between Jews and Christians on the one side and Muslims on the other. Okay. Isaac and Ishmael are a distinct fork in the road. And please grasp that the differences between the Judeo-Christian world and the Islamic world are irreconcilable. There is no halfway point. There is no meeting point. There is no compromise. Okay. Islam says that the words from God, from Allah, and the people of the promise of the covenants with Abraham come down through Ishmael. And those words are recorded in the Quran. Now, of course, Jews and Christians maintain that the promise of the covenants come down through Isaac and are recorded in the Holy Scriptures. Now, what we have just finished reading here, several chapters that explicitly state that the son of promise, the line of the covenant, was by means of Isaac, not Ishmael. Interestingly, 
the Muslims acknowledge that that indeed is what the Bible says, and they say the Bible texts have been corrupted and changed by Jews and Christians. That in fact, the Bible should say that Isaac was rejected and that Ishmael was the real son of promise. Now let's look at a couple of facts that makes that belief utter nonsense, just on its face. First, the religion of Islam didn't even come into existence until the prophet Muhammad formed it. And the Muslims, by the way, fully agree with that. Okay? And Muhammad wasn't even born until 600 years after the time of Jesus Christ. I mean, the last book of the Old Testament was written a thousand years before Muhammad was born. Okay? The last book of the New Testament was written almost 500 years before Muhammad was born. Let me say that another way. Okay? The Old Testament as we know it was completed in 400 BC approximately. The New Testament as we know it about 100 AD. And the founder of the religion of Islam was born in 575 AD. Okay? And upon Muhammad reading the Bible, he says, oh, all that was corrupted by Jews just to pervert what I'm telling you is, as the truth. I mean, it would be as though someone today stood up and said, hey, you know that Declaration of Independence and Constitution that's there in Washington, D.C. under glass? Well, the one that was written 250 years, it just isn't correct. I just wrote the correct one. Okay? The original one in Washington, D.C. is corrupted, you see, and it was corrupted just so you wouldn't believe that I'm writing down the correct one here on Merritt Island in 2005. Now, is that about the silliest, most illogical thing you've ever heard in your life? That is the claim of Islam, that it was pre-corrupted before Muhammad was even born. All right. Well, by the time Islam was even invented by Muhammad, the Roman Catholic Church was dominant throughout Europe and Asia. Constantine, who declared the new Gentile form of Christianity to be the state religion of the Roman Empire, had already been dead for 200 years by the time Muhammad was born. It doesn't even matter that with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have the oldest actual original scripture writings of the Hebrews from before the time Jesus Christ was born, and they've been studied, and photos of them have been released, and many of us have been to Israel and visited them, right, in that beautiful museum they have there. And they fully agree with the Bibles that you and I have before us tonight. Okay, Old Testament, of course. Proving that no corruption or change ever occurred. Yet Islam says that Genesis should have said that it was Ishmael who was the chosen one and not Isaac. Now second of all, and I think this is even more important, and don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise, there are only two ways, two ways that we can know who God is. His name and his attributes. Okay. There are those scholars who say 
that Allah is just Arabic for God. And while in the most general sense this is true, right, the only name of God in Islam is Allah. They reject all biblical names for God, even when those names are Arabized. Okay? Yudhe Vavhe, okay? El Shaddai, any biblical name or title for the God of the universe is wrong according to Islam. Okay? So the God of Islam, first of all, has an entirely different name than the God of the Bible. Further, the God of Islam glorifies death. Okay? The God of the Bible glorifies life. The God of Islam says that Muslims are to win over converts to Islam by means of the sword. The God of the Bible says that his believers are to win over converts by means of love and faith. The God of Islam says that how a Muslim behaves determines his eternal future. The God of the Bible says the condition of one's heart determines his eternal future. The God of Islam has no Messiah. The God of the Bible says there must be a Messiah. Okay? The God of Islam is a war God. The God of the Bible is a shalom God. Okay? It just goes on and on and on. Okay? The attributes, character, and instruction of the God of Islam as found in the Koran is the exact opposite of the attributes, character, and instruction of the God of the Bible. And yet, unfortunately, we have a president and many Christian religious leaders that tell us that Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all worshiping the same God. Hmm? Okay. I've heard pastors say that the best way to approach a Muslim is to say that we respect that they're just worshiping God. They just don't know that the God they're worshiping is Jesus. That's utter bunk. That's, that's ridiculous. I mean, I mean, this is insanity. Okay? It is blasphemy of the worst kind, and it's teaching God's people to believe that the worshiping of any God is fine, that no matter what his name or characteristics are, because any God is really just another name for the God of Israel. Well, that's not what Yahweh's been telling us. Was, is he trying to say that Baal or Molech is also the God of Israel? Alright? I mean, please, please, if you love the people of whatever church or synagogue you attend, take this information with you and tell them the truth. Okay? Do you realize what happened to those Israelites that worshipped both Yahweh and the gods of other nations? Those who tried to be politically correct and tolerant by the standards of their era? Okay. Those who declared that Yahweh and Baal were one, okay. they were scattered, millions destroyed and murdered. Okay. There is no difference between what they did and what we do today right in our places of worship when we declare Yahweh, Messiah, and Allah are all one. It's the same thing. Okay. And I remind you, God did not deal with them person by person and family by family. He placed a national judgment upon them. And the exact same thing is prophesied for our time. 
Okay? That you don't personally believe this blasphemy does not exempt you and your family from suffering right along with others in our nation under God's terrible discipline. Oh, certainly you're saved and your eternal future is secure. Okay, but is that all that really matters? I think not. Okay, let's continue on and look a little further at these tribes of, of Ishmael. It's kind of interesting where they wound up. Nebiod was the firstborn son of Ishmael. And his tribe are the people referred to as the Nebaiate, all right, in Assyrian accounts uh, of their empire's battles against the people of the Arabian Peninsula only a few decades prior to Judah being taken captive in Babylon. We more know these people as the Nabataeans, right, and even more recently as the Jordanians of the Petra area. Okay. Now the Nabataeans had a wide range. I will tell you, they operated at one point over most of what today is the Middle East and the Arabian Peninsula. A, a, a fabulous culture, to say the least. Now Kedar all right, is spoken of many centuries after, uh, after this Genesis account in the Bible, and they form some kind of association with the Edomites, all right? These are the descendants of Esau, all right? These are the people, all right, the people of Kedar, all right, who wandered around as shepherds and goat herders throughout the Arabian and Sinai peninsulas, all right? There's the Sinai Peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula, all right? Without doubt, they form at least part, if not all, of the modern-day Bedouins. Now, Ad Baal is known in Assyrian historical records as Idabael. All right, they were conquered by Tiglath-Pileser, the same guy who was instrumental in conquering the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel. All right, and they were sent way far south to guard the Egyptian border. Along pretty much along what today we would call the Suez Canal, right. um, so he used them as border guards. Duma's tribe shows up again in Isaiah 21. They occupied the territory on the Arabian Peninsula, just above the Gulf of Aqaba. Just they bordered right along with the people of Midian. Okay, where I'm circling right down here, all right, uh, let's see, let me back up one. Please back up. It's not backing up. Hold on a second. There we go. Okay, where I was just pointing out to you right here, Midian, all right, and then above them, the tribe of Duma, Occupied. Let's take a look at this bigger map. Here's the Arabian Peninsula. Arabian Peninsula. Here's the Sinai, Egypt. I'm talking about right up here. Okay, that's where they occupied. Um, the tribe of Tema dwelled around a well-known oasis northeast of Dedan. 
Alright, here's this here's the, the Red Sea. Alright, on up on up this direction here. Alright, this massive Red Sea. Um, there's that finger, the Gulf of Aqaba, the Sinai. Didan was right in this area, right here. And this is where uh, Tamah occupied. Now, Jetur and Nafish appear to have integrated into a single tribe, and they're described later on in the Bible as Hagrites. All right? In other words, that's a contraction for Hagarites. All right? Descendants of Hagar. And for all practical purposes, nothing is known beyond pure speculation about the remaining of the 12 sons of Ishmael. So we won't go there. Now, verse 16 tells us that the descendants of Ishmael lived in villages. All right? In other words, they didn't build and reside in uh, walled cities. They were rural. They were farmers and herders, and some were desert wanderers and traders. Um, this accounts for the lifestyle that a, a great many of the Arab peoples developed, right? in which because they lived in unfortified towns, they constantly attacked one another okay? in hopes of gaining for themselves by taking from another. Okay? This mentality is still at work today. Okay. Part of what fundamentalist Islam is fighting against today is a way of life that produces things rather than their traditional way of life that simply takes what others have produced. Okay. Okay. The, the, the traditional Arab tribal ways in general Okay, revolved around Arab tribes always seeking to take the wealth and power from other Arab tribes. Okay, even Muhammad, the founder of Islam, gained his reputation as a leader by leading attacks of his own tribe against other Arab tribes and winning. Okay, the, he was a he was a, a, a tremendous war leader there for a time. All right, and that is what got all the attention for him. Okay, the goal though is always the same: riches and booty. Okay, now I, I, I want that to sink in for a minute. Okay, why is it that these Arab Muslim strongholds of the world are also the most backward places in the world? Afghanistan, Pakistan, most of Iraq and Iran, and so on. It is because, generally speaking, a great portion of the population, again, not all, but a great portion of it, have no understanding of producing or fairness in the, sense of, in the biblical sense or technological process. When Islam attacked Europe in 711 AD, it was the European wealth they were after, not a European way of life. They didn't want their technology. Okay. The war on terror that we're facing today is indeed about fighting for a way of life. Okay. But the way of life that they want is we produce, they take it. Okay. Because they don't even know how all right, to produce and share except maybe, maybe within their own tribe. 
It's a tribal dominance game that's being played. If you heard recently, this um, leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq just declared war on the Shiites. I don't know if this is registering. All right. Now they're not necessarily so much a tribe, all right, but they are they are a separate group. And this this is how it works: one group warring against the other for dominance. Well, in verse 17, we're told that Ishmael lived for 137 years, and then he was gathered to his kin or to his people. Now here again we find no reference at all to what he was gathered to his kin means. Who were his kin? Um, was there an afterlife? If so, what did it consist of? We're never going to find out in Torah. And we're not going to find out a whole lot after that in the Old Testament. Rather, that statement, he was gathered to his kin, it's just kind of a nice way of saying he lived out a good lifespan, he died peacefully, probably of natural causes. Okay. His people were undoubtedly considered his descendants rather than his ancestors. Okay. He had been divided, Ishmael had been divided and separated away from his father. So Ishmael was, in essence, the start of a new line. Being gathered to his kin, I feel pretty certain, refers to his immediate family, who would, frankly, not be known as Arabs for several more centuries. Now, next we're given a territorial, a general territorial boundary where Ishmael's descendants lived. And it starts at the border of the Sinai Peninsula with Egypt right up in this area, which is the reference to Shur, and Shur just means wall. There was actually a defense wall at one time built all along this area of what was today the Suez Canal. And then they spread out all the way up to the north to what it calls Asher, but at one time this area of Mesopotamia was controlled by the Assyrians. Then the location of Havilah is not really known. All right, is there are many locations in the Middle East that goes by this or a variation of the name of Havilah. But the inference is that the descendants of Ishmael tended to stay among themselves. All right, because it says that they camped alongside their kinsmen. All right, they didn't seem to go up and mix with the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians to the south or the Nubians or many of the other non-Semitic peoples of the earth. Generally speaking, the descendants of Ishmael occupied areas north, south, and east of the land of Canaan. Okay, now that you know more about Ishmael than you probably expected or ever probably wanted to know, all right, let's move a little bit further into Genesis 25 tonight. Get just a little bit farther, not much more. Um, let's read Genesis 25, 19 to 34. Genesis 25, 19-34. Here is the territory of Yitzhak, Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Yitzhak. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rivka, the daughter of Betuel, the Arami from Padan Aram, and sister of Lavan, the Arami, to be his wife. Yitzhak prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Adonai heeded his prayer, and Rivka became pregnant. The children fought with each other inside her so much that she said, if it's going to be like this, why go on living? So she went to inquire of Adonai, who answered her, there are two nations in your womb. From birth, they will be two rival peoples. One of these people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time for her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. The first came out, uh, first to come out was reddish and covered all over with hair like a coat. So they named him Esau. Then his brother emerged with his hand holding Esau's heel. So he was called Yaakov. Yitzhak was 60 years old when she bore them. The boys grew and Esau became a skillful, skillful uh, hunter and outdoorsman while Jacob was a quiet man who stayed in the tents. Isaac favored Esau because he had a taste for game. Rivka favored Jacob. One day when Jacob had cooked some stew, Esau came in from the open country exhausted. And he said to Jacob, please, let me gulp down some of that red stuff, that red stuff, I'm exhausted. Jacob answered, first, sell me your rights as the firstborn. Look, I'm about to die, said Esau. What use to me are my rights as the firstborn? Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him, thus selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave him some bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, got up, and went on his way. Thus Esau showed how little he valued his birthright. Well, chapter 25 is really divided into three parts. The first third consisting of the final important details of Abraham's life. We've done that. The second third consisting of calling out the descendants of Ishmael and then giving some information about where they settled. We've done that. So now we're in the final third where we begin to chart the end of Isaac's story and the beginning of his son Jacob's story. So the torch was being prepared to be passed yet again. Okay. Now Isaac is spoken of only sparingly um, as compared to, his, to say his son Jacob or his father Abraham. For instance, we're told at the end of chapter 24 that Isaac married Rivka but then there's no information given to us about the first 20 years of their marriage. Just a blank. We do know that unlike Abraham, Isaac seems to have stayed closer to home. I mean, all of the known stories about Isaac's adulthood after he got married seems to center around the general area of Beersheba. As far as anyone knows, he didn't even live in Hebron as his father did except near the end of his life. But like his father, he was an owner of flocks and herds. Well, in verse 21, we find that much in the same way as it was for his father, Abraham, Isaac went a long time 
with his beloved wife unable to bear him an heir. Now further, the scriptures saying she was barren meant that she had given Isaac no children at all, not even girl children. Okay? And as with Abraham, Isaac goes before God and God grants his request for a son. So now Rebecca, Rivka, is pregnant. Now, while there are, of course, great similarities between the situation of Abraham and Sarah conceiving and the, now the current problem okay, with Isaac and Rivka, there are also some great differences. Okay, for instance, neither Isaac or, nor Rivka were elderly or beyond childbearing years, as were Abraham and Sarah. Even more, and this is kind of interesting, we don't find Isaac with any concubines. Okay. We don't find Rivka offering a handmaiden or a slave girl to bear a child in her stead. Okay. There appears to be no plans to do anything but live with the situation of not having any children um, until God decides to do something about it. Um, you know, I wonder, is it that the Lord waited for Isaac to approach him before allowing him to have children. Okay. Is it that the Lord was constrained by Isaac and that it was necessary for Isaac's prayers so that God could allow Rebecca to become fertile? I mean, this is the substance of a great many arguments among spiritual leaders. Does God need our prayers in order to act? I think not. Okay, but God does want to teach us. Okay, and he wants to have a relationship with us. Yet what relationship with anyone is possible without communication? Okay, while oral speech is the typical human-to-human -human way of communicating, prayer is the way God ordained for human-to-God communication. And while God doesn't need prayer, he wants our prayers. Okay. Conversely, we as humans need to pray. I cannot think of a way that builds a stronger faith than communicating my needs or that of another to God and then marveling over his response. Okay. But this much longed for pregnancy by Rebecca immediately became uncomfortable for her. Okay. And these apparently very active twin sons within her womb caused her to inquire of God just what was going on. I mean, let's be clear. This pregnancy worried Rivka. Okay? This activity within her womb was not normal. Okay? Even an unusual Hebrew word was chosen to describe the things going on here. The word that we see in here usually says that they struggled inside of her, in her, of her womb. The word that was used is va yitro tsetsu. Okay? Now this is a verb that has more the sense of crushing and thrusting and smashing. It is an extremely violent word. That's what was going on between those children in her womb. Okay? And we'll take off from this next week.